Live from Mexico City, this is The Late Late Show with Rich Wrigley. Okay, let's try this one more time. So hopefully the audio is working this time. Welcome to The Late Late Show with me, Rich Wrigley, this evening. We're going to be talking about my experiences running the Mexico City Marathon yet, uh, a couple of days ago, as well as me moaning about technology and also adapting to life in a different culture. So join me tonight on The Late Late Show with me, Rich Wrigley. Live from Mexico City, this is The Late Late Show with Rich Wrigley. On Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Awesome. Hey, technical difficulties aside, welcome to the Late Late Show with me rich wrigley and people can say they can actually hear me because earlier i was using my non-union mexican equivalent uh bluetooth headphones which are pure jank they're basically run by dreams and just sort of like held together with bits of string and for some reason i thought it would be okay to use those while i was using my fancy new external microphone but it confused the heck out of podbean so i'm terribly sorry for that you're listening to the late late show with me rich wrigley this evening we're going to be talking about uh well how to adapt to life in an in, well, in an international setting. How can you assimilate into your host country's culture or what I'm going to really say, your home country's culture um, or your new home country's culture? What are some of the tips and tricks that I found really useful for sort of adapting to life in a culture that's not beyond uh, that's beyond your like own culture? Um, from my own experience growing up as a student, as a kid, like living abroad a lot as a kid, but also as a teacher teaching internationally for 10 years. And uh, the main reason I'm doing the show today is I just want to flex about <laughs> finishing the Mexico City Marathon. So I'm going to talk about any teachers that are interested in running. How can you manage your time training for a marathon, doing running, but also managing your time in teaching as well. So please do text in. I'd love to hear what you have to say either about running, about teaching abroad, about living abroad, and things like that. So welcome to The Late Late Show with me, Rich Wrigley, this evening. So today we'll, well, we'll first talk, talk about the, well, give you a brief update about how things are going here in Mexico at the moment. So as you may have noticed in the past couple of weeks, I've had technical difficulties every now and then. I humbly apologize for that. The main reason is because I'm not as au fait with technology at the moment because, drum roll, exciting news we're actually back to presential lessons in school a hundred percent of our classes are presential no hybrid lessons we've had hybrid lessons since the start of the academic year at the end of august and about a week and a half ago we moved away from hybrid lessons into presential lessons only before that last academic year we were all online it was a legal requirement of the entire school to be completely all online the whole time and so mexican students have been online for 18 months and boy whoa can we notice that basically our year 11s are in year 9 mode our year 13s are in year 11 mode <laughs> so it is basically just absolute carnage right now Luckily as well, we've had the added fun of just like in the UK, doing the mocks a little bit earlier than we usually do, just to kind of like put the fear of uh, 
can I say the fear of God on this show? I don't know. Well, to put the fear into some students to realize that they need to do a little bit of extra work to catch up on things. And so that's just made things even more interesting, for sure. So we've been crazy busy here in Mexico at the moment, catching up students, not just academically, but also kind of pastorally, emotionally as well. And I understand a, a lot of the tweets and a lot of the things that British teachers or teachers, I should say, teaching in the UK posted about a couple of weeks ago when they were like, is you is year nine crazier at the moment, crazier than usual at the moment, or is it just me? Um, yeah, it's definitely because of the pandemic. And all I can say is add 18 months of students being stuck at home with their parents and not being able to see their mates in school and it's added for some really interesting times teaching school teaching students right now i mean i, I always say to, i'm saying to the students right now if you told me that like you know 17 year old rich or well, 17 year old mr wrigley or 15 year old mr wrigley would have to basically spend 18 months at home with their parents that's about it and you're not going to see your mates you're not going to be able to you're only going to be able to go to school via a webcam I don't think I would have handled it as well as they have. So to be fair, they have been absolutely amazing. And I'm so proud of all of them. They have absolutely smashed it. We have got a heck of a lot of work to do catching them up. Uh, but we're going to get there, basically. But we're not talking about that today. We're going to be talking first about <laughs> running and racing and marathons and stuff like that. Mainly just because I want to show off. Because, you know, like, how can you, t you know, it's like the old joke. How can you tell that a marathon, you know, how do you identify a marathon runner? Don't worry, they'll tell you about it. Anyway, I butchered that joke, didn't I? But anyway, let's continue. So earlier, yesterday, not yesterday, I'm merging days into one because time has no meaning for me at the moment. But earlier, earlier in the week on Sunday, we ran the time speed. <laughs> Sorry, Sabrius just texted in to say time speed. I'm a, I am a physics teacher and I did spend most of the marathon actually calculating things. So a lot of people have like those Strava watches and all of those kind of things. You can tell I don't because I called it a Strava watch, but I'll tell you that story in a second. But basically it was my, f I used to love running long distance. I haven't been able to run long distances because of lockdown other than running up and down my closed street in Mexico city um, since February of 2020, so about nearly, well, nearly two years, just under two years. That was the last trail race that I ran. And so I was super excited to run a full marathon. I've only done it once before, and I have a bold strategy that does pay off for running a marathon. It's basically make sure you eat loads of rice the day before. You can tell my mum was Indian. So make sure you have loads of rice the day before just to carb load. Boiled rice, nothing fancy. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about training, just show up and see what happens. And that's basically my strategy for running a marathon. Just show up and see what happens, basically. So that's pretty much what my plan was after a year of lockdown, just running up and down my close street. And some teach some fellow colleagues of mine, some mates and I from work decided to run the Mexico City Marathon, mainly just because we could and because we wanted to see the city and enjoy it. And so basically what we start the route starts at the Olympic Stadium, where uh, the Olympic Stadium in the University City, where the 68 Olympics was held. It runs down the longest street in, I think, in Latin America, if not the word called in, world called Insurgentes, literally means insur Insurgent Street. Um, and then we ran through all the historic center of Mexico City and finished in the historic center of 
Mexico City, 42 kilometers. My strategy is just to basically show up, have fun, run it, walk it if I have to, and enjoy the day. The reason for this is because as a teacher, I, even though I finish quite early compared to other schools, even though I finish quite early because of international commit, you know, being an international teacher, you get to finish a little bit earlier, but also because in Mexico, we finish a little bit earlier anyway as well. I really don't have time to train. And so I just kind of wanted to prove that I could just ruck up and do it for the fun of it, basically. So that was basically... <laughs> can we hear the cats? Yes, you can hear the cats. I was testing out a new mic that's very not directional. So sorry, Sabia just texted in as well to say, can we hear the cats? Yes, I'm afraid that is bought. They, they're going to become my co-host on this thing because basically they know about as much pedagogy as I do, um, but also they're more entertaining. I wish this was a live show. We could like video it kind of like Howard Stern style in the, in the, in the early nineties, but with less casual sexism, that would be great. Um, so yeah, they, they're meowing in the corner mainly because I didn't close the door properly that enters to where my office is and they're just chilling out and demanding food at this point. That's pretty much their life. So yeah. So anyway, we're, we're here on the late, late show. It's really great here seeing people in. Please do text in. We'll talk, I've been briefly talking about running, mainly as a prelude to sort of talking about teaching abroad and teaching internationally. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about sort of how to adapt to life in a different country if you move abroad, if you want to teach abroad, and sort of how to escape some of the tropes that I find very cliche, one of a better word, very cliche, but also uh, sort of like a lot of the bad habits in my opinion, that people tend to fall into as an international teacher and how you can sort of integrate or assimilate more into the culture of the country that you're living in. Okay, so the first, well, the first thing is, let me tell you just a little bit about my backstory. Um, the backstory, so first off, I grew up living abroad as a kid. I'm from the UK originally. I'm from Southampton. I'm as all of my students know, I am a very loyal Southampton FC fan. Uh, I don't know why I said Southampton FC, a loyal Saints fan. Um, but when I was about seven years old, I moved abroad uh, because my dad had a job. So I went to an international school as a kid. Uh, he worked for a telecoms company. And then we moved from, uh, I was living in China at the time, moved from China to the States, went to a public elementary school, public in the proper sense of public, not the Etonian idea of public, where it's not open to the public, but actually open to the public state school and i went to japan uh again went to an international school and this was all because my dad moved around a lot and had different jobs around the world and this made me become something called a third cut i can't say it properly this made me this made me become something called a third culture kid where basically you sort of adopt the culture from your host country not the cultures of your two parents basically um Okay, sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, uh, so yeah, I moved abroad a lot as a kid, and I really saw my, my teachers really inspired me. One of the teachers that really really got me into teaching was Mister Mister Cowell from my year five class, uh, year five like teacher in China, and a lot of his philosophy. You can still hear board again if you listen out for him. Oh my gosh, this is like me teaching online again. But can you give me five minutes, dude? Chill out. 
I'll be with you in a second, buddy. See, this is like my... <laughs> That's also my classroom management style. Dude, chill out. We're going to get there. Okay, just chill. So, But also, they know when I'm in here that they think online learning is happening and they know that they can distract me, basically. they Normally, what would happen is the kids would be like, or the students would be like, sir, is that your cat? Bring him in, bring him in, bring him in. And then I'd have to show the cat for about five minutes and bring it back. It got to the point... It got to the point where I think Year 13 have requested formally that Hobbs and Bort, my two cats, uh, attend either the graduation ceremony of theirs or that they are, they are able to come and visit them in school somehow. They've not asked me. They've not asked me if I can go to their graduation. I like to throw that out there. But they've asked the cats if they can go to the graduation. So I, you know, I take that as a compliment. But, yeah, not, I'm not going to bring them in because... So, 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 so Bia's just texting and saying bring them in. I'm not going to bring them in because there's a load of loose cables here. And basically, Bort is pure carnage wrapped up in fuzziness. So he is just... I can't use the words to describe his personality sometimes because they're all swear words. But basically, he goes from calm to complete... You fill in the words, okay? Complete not nice words. Anyway, so so anyway, after the interruption from Bort, we'll go back to what, what was I saying again? I just realized that I talk a lot, and this is probably like my teaching style. My teaching style is a mixture of Billy Connolly, Eddie Izzard, and just sort of all of those distracted stand-up comedians where I was like, what was I talking about again? Oh, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're talking about specific e-capacity now or something like that. Anyway, so I grew up and moved around a lot as a kid, and I had one of my, one of my favorite teachers was a year five teacher, Mr. Cowell. Um, uh, Mr. Cowell, who the first thing he told me or like told the class was, it's more important to understand something to mem than to memorize something. And that was really, really stuck with me. And it's sort of like one of the philosophies I had. And that was in like the early 90s and things like that. So anyway, it, I sort of grew up thinking, hey, cool, I could be a teacher. I quite enjoy that. I also loved physics and all of that kind of stuff as well and loved everything to do with space science and technology and astronomy and all of those kind of things as well. So that's what I studied at university, um, knowing that I was, without sounding show-offy, that was my best subject. That was my only good subject was science and maths, basically. Um, you don't want me in an English language class. Like, I don't do very well. Um, but then after that, realizing that, knowing that if I went to university and studied that, I could get a job in anything, basically. Randomly wound up, on a ambassador scheme for the university to go and teach mainly so I could get extra credit so I could uh, teach in a class for a little bit and be guaranteed 10 extra credits for my course and then I didn't know what I wanted to do realized that all my three of my mates were going to do a PGCE at the same school uh, at the same university that I was at so I was like well I have no idea what I'm doing next year I'm gonna just sort of rock up <laughs> and, and ask to apply applied obviously being a physics graduate they were like yeah sure you want to teach cool come on in and then realized that i actually love teaching as i kind of grew along with the process i taught for a couple of years in the uk um in a sixth form college and in secondary schools uh this was during the michael gove era which i've mentioned many many times and i don't know if you've noticed but the conservative government i don't know if you've noticed this over the last 10 years but the conservative government doesn't seem to really care about education um, it seems to be like kind of underfunding it. I, d I might be the first person to notice this. Um, I kind of noticed this about 10 years ago. 
Um, I also realized that the education secretary really didn't have my best interests at heart. And also the school was kind of toxic that I was in. And I realized, why am I sacrificing my mental health here uh, when I could go and teach abroad like all of like the teachers that taught me in China and Japan and places like that? They seem to have a pretty good life. So that's what I did. Anyway, so I went and taught abroad and I lived in, I taught in one school in Mexico City from taught in one school in Mexico City uh, for about four years or so, went to Brazil afterwards, well, first before that, met my wife here, well, she wasn't my wife then, but you know what I mean, uh, we started dating, got married, moved to Brazil with my wife, with Hobbs, not Bort, Bort wasn't around then, Hobbs travelled, so the cat picked him up, put him in a plane, flew to Brazil, taught there for a couple of years, then picked up the cat again, took him to Germany, taught in Germany for a couple of years, and then picked up the cat, put him on a plane, took him to Mexico, and that's where I am right now. And that's where we adopted Bort as well. So I've been sort of teaching internationally on and off for several years and also lived abroad a lot as a kid as well. And so I've got kind of some like tips and tricks, and I'm here to answer any questions you may have about moving abroad, but also living abroad as well, and what it's like to actually live abroad as a teacher. Um, the first thing I would say is that a lot, well, first off, I hate this term, and a lot of people use it. I'm going to use it for convenience, but expats. I really, really hate it. I hate the term expats because by that logic, my mum would be an expat in the UK, um, even because she was from India originally. And it doesn't make any sense. It's a very white thing to say, and it just kind of creates a natural divide of like privileged people living abroad being privileged. Uh, so it kind of really bothers me a little bit, but that's kind of the term that we're kind of stuck with. So I'm going to use it just for convenience's sake. Um, but yeah, a lot of expat teachers generally fall into like a, a, an easy trap. They're basically like, if you want to teach abroad, there's a couple of options. And one option I would say is if you want to teach abroad, but you want to live in a bit of a bubble and make a lot of money, a lot of teachers tend to go down the route of going to either Asia, primarily China, but also parts of Southeast Asia or the Middle East. And it can be a really, really good experience. And I don't know much about that other than my own personal experience of living abroad in China as a kid, basically. Uh, but then also you can have teachers that move all over the place, essentially. And there is a smaller subset. And my personal experience is teachers living in Latin America. The reason why there are less international teachers in Latin America is that they pay less than, or schools pay less than in the Middle East and in China and in Asia in general. If you move there, you can you can expect a lot better benefits um, than in Latin America as a whole. Um, but if you do move to Latin America, you can find, I would say, a better opportunity to integrate with the culture with the with the host country than say Asia, Latin America, and that comes from my experience as well of living in Asia. Uh, so, and what about the cost of living? So, so Sabia's just texted in to say, what about the cost of living? I would say you are you're paid less in Latin America. The cost of living is lower for sure. The cost of living is lower, so you are able. And the big benefit of teaching internationally. But except in the big benefit of teaching in Latin America, in Asia, basically in all international settings apart from Europe, the biggest factor 
is that your accommodation is paid for or provided in some sense. So for example, right now I have a very lovely three bedroom flat, very, very lovely, a little bit old, but absolutely lovely, really nice kitchen, things like that. And that is paid for outside of my salary. Okay. It's registered, it's paid for, and I, you know, like it's registered for tax purposes and everything like that. It's all above board. Don't get me wrong, but I don't have to pay rent for that. And that is included. If I wanted to move, I'm basically given a rent allowance. If I wanted to move and any, like the rent was above my rent allowance, I would pay the difference, which is what I'm doing now. I think I'm paying like 30 pounds a month over my rent allowance to, to live where I live. Um, and that's the same pretty much in all international settings, apart from Europe. When I taught in Germany, you are responsible for finding your own place. Um, in Europe, essentially, except for maybe a few very prestigious international schools, you're expected to find your own accommodation and pay for it out of your salary. Um, that can be a huge, a huge sort of stumbling point, particularly in places like Germany, where it's very, very hard to find accommodation anyway, to find rented accommodation or to purchase accommodation or whatever. So that would be the biggest sort of like stumbling block. So the cost of living is lower. I'm also paid though in Mexican pesos. I do have an allowance that's linked to... Um, pound sterling but the majority of my pay is linked to mexican peso so obviously mexico like expats or foreigners will look at the exchange rate of their home country so for example i used to live in europe i still regard europe as my home country so i look at the euro a lot more than other um than than the pound but the value has changed significantly so that can affect the cost of living as well for me right now day in day out it doesn't affect it I'm gonna make everyone here listening very angry. My cost of living, my last electricity bill, which was considered high by my wife, was nine pounds <laughs> for three months. I'm just gonna let that sink in so I can hear the anger infuse into you. Uh, I have a car here, well, we have a car here as well. Uh, petrol or gas is 80 pence a litre. 80 pence a Oh, our water bill for three months was... What was our water bill? I don't know. I think it was like a fiver for three months. Something a five quid for three months. I don't know the exchange rate because I don't pay attention to British pounds because I don't recognise terrible currency um, or currency that's about to crash because of Brexit. Uh, sorry, did I say that out loud? Um, <laughs> so yeah, please come over here. Seema, what do you teach? Uh, we're always looking for new teachers. Also... Um, Mexico is amazing. Please come out here. We're always looking for new teachers. Our food is better. Uh, what are the benefits of living in Mexico? Our food is better. Um, I've not been racially abused in Mexico. I have been in the UK. I've not been accused of being a terrorist in the UK, uh, in Mexico. I have in the UK. Uh, so yeah, it's a lot nicer. Also, the students are really lovely. The students in the UK are lovely too. I need to actually correct myself there. And the students, the students in the UK are lovely. The students I taught in the UK are were absolutely fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but Mexican students are just so nice. They're so friendly and so nice. And so, like every lesson, people will leave saying thank you, even if it was a janky lesson, even if it was not my best lesson. Like you know, imagine things like that. Um, the students will leave going, "Oh, thank you, sir," and things like that. So yeah, please, please, please come over. Tell me what you're teaching. I'll see if we've got a vacancy here. It's apps. It's really, really good. I really, really love it here. Um, so yeah, in terms of adapting into the culture, you can of a different 
in terms of adapting into a culture, I would say the most important thing is just sort of putting yourself out there. The easiest thing to do, and a lot of expat teachers or a lot of foreign teachers fall into this habit, is that you want to, well, first off, the language barrier can be a thing. So the first thing I would say is make an effort to learn the language. Now, I am painfully dyslexic. (laughs) I have ADHD. I am the least effective person in a language class. If you give me a shed load of grammar tables to memorize and understand conjugations about things, I will flunk it. And I have flunked it numerous times here in Mexico. My written Spanish is absolutely abysmal. Um, It's awful. But I found new strategies and ways of actually learning Spanish and improving my Spanish. Well, the first one was dating a Mexican and then marrying a Mexican and then getting to know my Mexican family uh, and speaking with my Mexican family who only speak Spanish or what I call machine gun Spanish because it comes out of your mouth like bullets of a machine gun, like crazy fast. That is one way. But if you don't want to go down that route, it is a bit of a long-term commitment, I understand, uh, to really learn a language. But you just want to learn a language short-term. Throw yourself out there. Go to football matches, get involved in different sort of activities, clubs, societies that don't have foreigners in it, basically. So, for example, when I first got here, I used to go and play football with all the Mexican staff at my work, basically, and just sort of we would be speaking in Spanish all the time. And I tell you, nothing makes you learn Spanish quickly than being yelled out to shoot, uh, like shoot a football very, very quickly in Spanish. And then when I moved back here, I realized that that was the best way for me to learn because I actually like the social side of those kind of things. So joining a baseball team, a softball team, for me was like the best way to learn it. Going hiking with a hiking group of people who aren't native in English. The other thing as well is trying to make a No, Seema, I totally agree. You say it forces you to learn when you're surrounded by people who speak the same language. The biggest thing we have, the biggest difficulty we have, I would say, as English speakers who want to learn English is that everyone we speak, speak to would also want to practice their English. (laughs) So we have to find that middle ground. So sometimes what we do is, uh, like, if someone wants to practice their English, I'm like, okay, speak to me in English, I'll speak to you in Spanish. And then we kind of, like, switch back and forth that way. Or we'll do, like, okay, for, like, next hour we'll speak in English, the hour after that in Spanish or or something like that, because that can kind of throw you off a little bit as well. So, like, the best thing I would say is just to throw yourself out there And that kind of leads me to the next bit, which we'll talk about after a little break for the news. And that's kind of getting yourself out of the expat bubble. So while we just pause for the news briefly, uh, we'll be talking about that. Please do text in with any of your questions about um, living abroad, adapting to life abroad and things like that. And while we pause for the news briefly and while I uh, shut up and give him some food. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, the Department for Education has said it will employ attendance advisors at a rate of up to £500 per day to tackle persistent absence in schools. Schools Minister Robin Walker said... Every lesson that we can prevent a child from missing is another building block to their life chances, development and well-being. I recognise that Covid is still with us 
and causing some unavoidable absence. But this is all the more reason that we must all take action to address every avoidable reason for a child not being in school. Kevin Courtney, Joint General Secretary of the NEU Teaching Union, said, School leaders are no strangers to the diverse causes of absenteeism and have procedures in place to work on relationships with families and build a way back for pupils who have become disengaged from learning. This work is important, but can often be time-consuming. Any support forthcoming is to be welcomed, but is also incumbent on government to recognise its role in some of the causes of school absence. This ranges from a narrow and arid curriculum, driven by a culture of testing, which drains much of the pleasure away from learning, right through to the turbulence that disadvantage and poverty can bring to families where children may often have to take on carer roles themselves. We must also consider the sheer number of SEND pupils as yet undiagnosed and the mental health issues which have only increased during the pandemic. Fining parents and punishing students is not the approach that will address these issues. In Scotland, educational institutes are increasingly introducing gender-neutral toilet facilities. Schools in Dundee, East Renfrewshire and Edinburgh have all introduced these facilities following warnings in 2019 from Scottish National Party politicians and by the Scottish Equality and Human Rights Commission that schools would leave themselves open to lawsuits if they did not provide them. Parents across Scotland have however raised concerns over gender-neutral toilets in secondary schools, which can see 12-year-old girls and 18-year-old men sharing facilities. Harry Scott, Scottish Borders Councillor, said, Why is it not possible to have male, female and gender-neutral toilets, which would cater for the needs of everyone? Why can that not be achieved in our schools? This has been your daily education news briefing. Okay, welcome back to The Late Late Show with me, Rich Wrigley. We're talking about sort of adapting to life teaching abroad and everything in between, basically. I was just listening to the news there, and I'm just kind of like, I'm baffled. The government wants to spend £500 a day to tackle true, like, absenteeism so just doing some quick maths that's two thousand five hundred pounds a week that's ten thousand pounds a month yeah totally that's that's definitely where we're going to spend the money um yeah so i can see a lot of people texting in saying like oh i'm moving abroad i'm moving abroad yes this is the british government was the reason why i moved abroad it's also the reason why i don't want to be english right now <laughs> so if you want to join me in well, I wouldn't say teaching paradise, it's still hard work, but if you want to join me in a profession uh, where you are valued, where you are paid a fair amount, come and teach abroad, please. Uh, traitor, I am definitely not a traitor. I'm just a realist. That's the thing. So I want to teach physics and I want to teach physics without having to deal with a Tory government. It's. I know it's crazy. I know it's a crazy idea, but I've de I decided many years ago to... <laughs> 
not have to put up with them. Maybe if another government comes in, I might come back. But bearing in mind that, <laughs> well, essentially right now, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she put in place a rule. Uh, she put in place a rule saying that if you're married to a non-EU spouse, you have to prove that you're earning a certain amount of money, or actually your spouse has to prove you're earning a certain amount of money uh, in order to qualify for a, that spouse to get a visa. And that money goes up if you have kids uh, who would be British citizens. Um, so if my wife is not welcome in the UK, I'm not welcoming the UK. This has become quite partisan, so I apologise for that. This is not the uh, the insurrection show with Rich Wrigley. This is just more the grievance show with Rich Wrigley. Uh, so Sabia has just texted in to say, uh, what about behaviour? What's it like out there? I think behaviour varies from school to school, and it really depends as well, depending on SLT, the behaviour policy that you have, the support you have from the, from the school. I'm very thankful that I have a really, really um, supportive SLT. I would say behavior on the whole in, in the two schools I worked at in Mexico are relatively straightforward. It's If you have taught in any English school, you will totally be able to handle behavior in, a, in, the, in, in the international schools I've worked in. Um, some students are more challenging than others. That's obviously totally the same, but it is very basic compared to uh, teaching in the UK. As long as you have consistent expectations, clear policies, you know, like you follow the behavior policy, you have your own clear expectations of what you want out of the students, and in particular that there is that you are fair or that you are seen to be fair and reasonable, it is an absolute doddle to be a, 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 to, to manage behavior. I would say the hardest thing I have to do day in, day out is to get students to listen to me or to stop talking. And I have found that in particularly in Latin America, and I hope I'm not being xenophobic or making a hasty generalization because that is not the case. But I have found and a lot of international teachers have found that if you go and teach in Latin America, when you ask for quiet, when you want to settle the class down, it does take a couple of seconds longer than if you were teaching in the UK. And the reason is as well is that it is a culture where people talk a lot. So the idea of side conversations between people is not considered rude. Um, so as long as you're fair and reasonable and say, hey, look, you know, I'm from the UK, what you're doing to me is considered a little rude and I need you talking to me, <laughs> which, uh, not talking to me, listening to me, students will be quiet and pay attention. That's the hardest kind of behavior issue. Obviously, we have more serious behavior issues and things like that every now and then. And that does need to be brought up every now and then. But that's where it comes from support with like SLT or your, your line manager and things like that. But on the whole, yeah, very, very easy. I know I'm at, like one of the reasons why I don't want to go back to the UK is that I've been teaching internationally in Latin America and Europe for 10 years. In Germany, when I taught in Germany, it was a very similar thing. We had students from all over the world, and I would say behavior was very similar as a very easy to manage. I would say as a science teacher, sometimes you'd have to be a bit more careful, a bit careful every now and then with certain practicals um, and things like that, depending on the class, depending on the time of day, you, you know, usual kind of thing. But behavior was very, very straightforward to manage. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons why I don't want to go back to the UK other than all of the grievances I have with with the British government is that um, I'm worried, for want of a better word, that I've not practiced proper behavioral, man behavioral management 
like in the UK. A lot of our teachers here, when they arrive from the UK, we have to take them aside and go, hey, you need to tone it down a little bit because you're being too strict. <laughs> Almost, not too strict, but your tone, which would be seen as completely reasonable in a UK school, can be seen as kind of harsh almost and it can kind of almost have a negative effect where it turns off the students from you and sort of like un sorry sort of like what's the word of saying it like sort of like if you're too strict too harsh basically like behavior management like a uk teacher it puts off mexican students almost they feel like oh he's been mean to me and you can kind of take it personally or the students can kind of take it personally. What other cultural differences you find? One thing that I... So thank you, Sabir, for taking that. Uh, one, one cultural difference I found is that... And this is... We actually had, when I arrived at my second school in Mexico, we had, for all foreign teachers, a introduction to Mexican culture talk from, from a couple of the sort of like social science teachers and like sort of explaining the cultural differences between primarily UK schools and UK culture, but then also obviously we have teachers from the States and Canada, so basically English-speaking culture to Latin American culture, primarily Mexican culture. And one of the things that the, the students said, the two things, well, first off, when I went into that talk, I was there like, ah, I've got this, I'm married to a Mexican, I understand this already, blah, 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 blah. But one of the things I found that was really, really interesting is that in Mexican culture, from pre-Columbian days, so basically before Mexico was conquered by the Spanish. Don't get me started about that. I will rant about how corrupt and awful the Spanish were and how they've not owned up to basically genociding a whole continent. Uh, but then again, neither of the English. Uh, so anyway, but basically in pre-Columbian times, everything was very, very communal and everything was done together. It was a very egalitarian communal society. And that culture of everyone doing things together is very present still. And I've noticed that as a as a person just living in Mexico. So for example, uh, my mother-in-law is surprised that I don't talk to my family in the UK as much as she would imagine is an appropriate amount um, because she is used to like being with her daughter very, very often, for example, uh, or, you know, every, you know, speaking to her every day or every other day. Um, that filters in into teaching as well. So you will. it is not uncommon for students to say, hey, can I go to the bathroom? Excuse me, sir, can I go to the bathroom? And then you go, you know, obviously within reason, you go, yes, sure, no problem. And then two other students ask, can I go with them? Even though they don't need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's a case of everyone going together. Uh, and I was like, but you don't need to go to the bathroom. Uh, yeah, but I just want to go with them. I was like, no, 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 you don't. The other biggest one, particularly for UK teachers, particularly for UK male teachers is, uh, sort of like how and this I, don't, I really want to phrase this right how affectionate students can be um, because students will try and hug you a lot uh, and as a British teacher you're just there like hey no please don't hug me nope 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 thank you like that basically uh, but they'll just go up to you and try and hug you and that's secondary students not primary students as well um, another thing as well is that Mexicans in particular, I've noticed, and this is coming from like sort of like the talk and that I've had before is uh, sort of like the training session we had when we first arrived, is that Mexicans value hard work and they value things looking really, really good and being very beautiful, but not valuing an efficient way of working hard. So a lot of the times a student will go to me, oh, but I, you know, I'll give them feedback on a piece of work. It wasn't great. And I'll give them critical feedback in a nice way and say, hey, this is what you need to do to improve. And they'll be very crestfallen saying, 
but I worked so hard. And I was like, I understand you worked hard, but it wasn't what I wanted you to do kind of thing. Uh, that can be a really, really big problem. The biggest, biggest difference, though, is the grading system. Uh, the grading system in Mexico is bonkers. I say that professionally. I hope people from the SEP, which stands for the uh, Secretary of Public Education, aren't listening. I teach in English. Yeah, I teach in English, but I have to register my grades into the Mexican school board system, for, even though I teach in an international school. Uh, I will teach in physics in English, but I have to register grades to the SEP, stands for uh, Secretaria de Educación Pública, uh, Secretary of Public Education. And if you think that the Ministry of Education or the DFE or whatever it's called nowadays is bonkers, the SEP is worse. There are five failing grades. Actually, no, wait, there are six failing grades. They're all fails. It doesn't matter. And then there are four passing grades. Uh, the grades go from one to ten, ten being the best all the way down. But there's actually even more precision than that because you can add a decimal to it. So you can have a grade of like instead of nine, you can have nine point two. And the problem with Mexican grading is that basically students will see the grade and just see the uh, students will see the grade and they will only respond to the grade. Uh, they will look at the number and nothing else. So you can give I remember coming from the UK with an attitude of, OK, you're working at a grade C right now. This is what you need to do to move up to a grade B. I would do the same thing. Uh, with like, okay, you're at grade six now, this is what you need to do to move up to a grade seven. And the student would just see the grade six and literally burst into tears. Um, it is a very cultural thing of just seeing the grade because they are linked to your permanent record. You have a permanent record of all your grades from first year one or something like that. And I was, my wife still has like grades, like her report cards from I don't know, when she was in secondary school, when she was in secundario, we say, secondary school. Um, there's no criteria for what makes a 10, a grade 10, like the highest grade, a 10. It's just down to teacher discretion. So when we were talking about like teacher predicted grades and how complicated it was last year because of the pandemic, I was like, that's pretty much what we have to do in Mexico the whole time. And there's no definition of what makes the highest grade, the highest grade per subject. My family have had teachers that just go, yeah, I like you, grade 10. Or no, you you annoy me, grade 7 or whatever. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, luckily, being in an international school, we just have to sort of follow along with it. And then we teach international baccalaureate and international GCSEs, um, which is a little bit easier. But it's it's really difficult as well crossing over and sort of like comparing what a grade B is at IGCSE to what would be the Mexican equivalent of a grade. And the hardest thing of that is the students will understand it and where they're at. But the hardest thing is then communicating it to parents effectively, because they'll just, you know, this is a culture, this is an, a grading system that they've grown up with. What most parents have grown up with living in Mexico. So this to them is the most important thing. But as a teacher, it's almost not the most important thing. The most important thing is the international qualifications we teach. So we really need to kind of reinforce what this is worth and then also reinforce that, okay, yeah, we understand that you value these grades, but remember that you're in a, an international school and this is the sort of, this is the equivalent here and this is the philosophy and this is why you're sending your, your, your children here is that you want to give them an international education and how we grade can be a little bit different over time. So yeah, I would say that's the that's the hardest thing. I'd also say the hardest thing, uh, a cultural difference, is that lessons start crazy early. 
So I'm in school at 7 a.m. Lessons start, well, registration starts at 7.30. And there are some people who live far away from the school, have to deal with Mexican traffic. So they're up at like 5.30 in the morning to get into school for a 7, 7 o'clock start. That would be the hardest thing, I would say, is kind of getting used to that kind of system. The weird thing as well is that we have a very short break, about 40 minutes of lunch. Uh, and lunch is a very small thing here. It's like you, you go home and have lunch afterwards. Um, so it would just be like a snack of some kind. Uh, something like to kind of, you'd have breakfast beforehand and then like a snack to sort of just, just keep you going through the day. But then lessons finish at 2.30 and students leave the school, start leaving the school at 2.30. And teachers are free to leave the school at uh, around three o'clock, let's see, yeah, two fifty-five. So I live a couple of minutes walk away, so I can be home at two, like basically at five past three. I can also hear the hate coming off as soon as I said that. So yeah, I can be home from three o'clock, which is great, and that's one of the best perks of international teaching. Is yes, it is hard work. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but the work-life balance is absolutely on point. And also, I'm really, really happy as well that my uh, that my students or that my that my teacher uh, that my SLT are able to sort of really value work life balance, particularly due to the pandemic. Uh, some of you just texted in saying intervention, and I think that means uh, either that I'm ranting too much and that you're intervening in me ranting too much. But I think what you actually mean is uh, intervention in terms of if a student is failing, what kind of systems do we put in place? Uh, yes, we we do have intervention. Um, it varies. Um, a lot of our students are actually quite high attaining, um, but there's different levels of intervention. Um, if, for example, we had a student that was failing either IGCSE or an IB subject, uh, we would work with the head of year, uh, the head of key stage. We would meet with the parents as a head of faculty. I would uh, meet with the parents, and we would put strategies in place. We would do usual things like revision clubs and things like that. Um, it's less. Results are important, but it's not as driven, I would say, as the UK, not as like because the league tables and things like that were more looking to do well in terms of results because, you know, we need to, as a private school, as a, you know, make sure that the parents realize they're going to send their students somewhere where they're going to achieve well, you know, achieve high grades and all of those kind of things. So it really depends. Like, for example, we've just had the mock exams right now. And obviously with 18 months out of school, the mock exam grades were a little bit lower than previous years to be expected. So we'll have different intervention strategies in place uh, that will involve uh, sort of like in this case for this year, highlighting things that or subjects or topics in each subject that we can go over again and sort of reinforce. For example, in science, they've not been able to do many practical lessons because of home learning. So we'll sort of emphasize that more. Um, but it could also be the case of, um, you know, seeing whether students could go down a different route, reduce the number of IGCSEs that they're doing, reduce either instead of going from extended papers, go to core papers, which is the difference between is similar to that's IGCSE speak for higher and foundation. Um, if they were doing the IB diploma, whether they reduce the number of papers they do and they only do certificates and things like that, things along those lines, basically. So that's sort of the things that we would uh, look at. We're going to just take a little break to uh, talk about, uh, so just to play a brief advert. You're listening to The Late Late Show with uh, me, Rich Wrigley. Need support with your phonics teaching? 
Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programs to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. And welcome back to the Late Late Show with me, Rich Wrigley. We've got another 10 minutes left on the show, so please just do text in any questions you have about international teaching. I'm here to answer them. Also, Bort is with me. He was rattling on the door way too much. So Bort, the engine of chaos as we describe him politely, is here. And as soon as I've held him up to the mic, he's refused to speak. Bort, you here, bud? Yep, no, he's not here. He may butt in every now and then. His views on pedagogy is probably about as good as mine, to be honest, as well. Um, so he was basically uh, the pastoral team during home learning last year. Him and Bo him and Hobbs were basically uh, <laughs> the pastoral team for me, sort of helping out and sort of relaxing the students. They are going to go. I'm going to see a way if I can get them into school somehow, I'm going to have to speak to my head because I only live about a 10 minute walk down the road. So it's not going to be too stressful for them, but it'd be really cool, particularly for my year 13s, because when they were in year 12, Hobbs used to, Hobbs and Bolt used to join us for Cat Friday. And so they kind of miss him a little bit, but I don't want to stress them out too much. So I'm going to try and see if I can get them to come and visit the students safely with minimal stress. Uh, so yeah, we've been talking about uh, adapting to sort of life teaching abroad. I'd say the biggest challenges were grading systems, the nuances of different sort of curriculum and things like that, learning about sort of like how things are different to teaching in the UK. And the teachers that I, I would say, in my opinion, that sort of thrive the most are teachers that will sort of throw it. Bored, chill out, buddy. Okay, sorry, he's just trying to destroy something. I'm not sure what he's trying to destroy. Uh, but he's gone behind something and is destroying it. So that's cool. Okay, anyway. So I would say the teachers that are most successful, the ones that actually embrace the culture that they're living in, instead of having this kind of colonialistic attitude of we are better, therefore we're going to do it this way, which is, I hate to say, it's what some expat teachers or what some foreign teachers can fall into a little bit. Um, and yes, some of the ways we do things are better, but then some of the ways that your host nation do things are also better. So you need to sort of be a bit open-minded and relax. Um, I would say as well, the best thing to do is have a good sense of humor because things are gonna go wrong. You're most likely gonna be living in a country where you don't speak the language or that language is not your native language. Things will go wrong. And if you are relaxed and are able to laugh about it, it goes a heck of a lot better than if you take things super super seriously every single time and also you've got to realize that the students will be different it varies from country to country i've shared with you my experiences of teaching primarily latin student uh, latino students primarily mexican students and how they see the world or how they perceive teachers and how they see the world is completely different to how a student from the uk will see the world as well now this is a rough generalization but if you're on the whole flexible and open to how a culture deals with things it's going to make your life a lot easier doesn't mean to say that you have to accept everything and say oh yeah cool that this is how that culture does it so we're going to do it that way or anything like that 
no, absolutely not. You can still sort of accept, you know, like say, hey, no, why don't we try it this way and things like that. But the, the teachers that kind of come in with a I'm better attitude almost, and I hate to say that, but it does happen a lot. They tend to struggle a lot. Um, personally, that's my experience. Um, the other thing I would say in terms of like embracing the culture as well is just get to learn the food, get to know what kind of food people eat and enjoy that. So some people were saying, oh, yeah, they want to come over here. Totally come over to Mexico. The food is way better than in the UK. The food is super duper cheap. And it's got uh, it's got this thing called flavor in it, which English food doesn't seem to have. It's awesome. I, my mom was born in India. So I basically we have a, a running joke in my family that any food that's from England is very bland. Um from the goodness gracious me joke like what's the blandest thing you have oh i'm gonna have these bread rolls and things like that that's pretty much what my mum would say all the time i still have a little bit of trauma uh from my mum insisting that you know seven cloves of garlic in every every dish she would cook is the bare minimum and that smell kind of like permeating through me uh as as a kid in secondary school being one of only two students of asian how you say it of uh, Asian origin or Indian origin in a very very wide school. I still have a phobia of cooking with like garlic and chilies and things like that, just because I know it will stick on my like skin and things like that. But it is awesome, and the food here in Mexico is absolutely fantastic. I would say though, if you want to be a teacher abroad, one of the hardest things I would say is in terms of dietary requirements is if you're vegetarian, you can find it a little bit difficult depending on which country you move to. Uh, there was a PE teacher that I worked with here who was vegan and was able to find vegan food all over here. And in, and in Mexican culture, veganism is, it's, it, it's understood, but it's not, and it's a new, you know, it's a relatively new thing, I would say newer than in the UK. I used to be vegetarian, for example, in the UK, uh, many, many years ago when I was a teenager. I would say that if I was a vegetarian here, I wouldn't struggle find being able to eat out and enjoy nice food, but I would definitely find it more difficult than being a vegetarian in the UK, uh, mainly because, for example, a lot of the foods and sauces and things like that that are cooked here have like meat or stock, like beef stock or chicken stock or things like that in here. And the idea of vegetarian stock is very, very small, uh, very, you know, not used as often. And so it's very, very hard to find those kind of dishes overall. And then if you throw in things like, you know, if you want to be vegan as well, the the dietary requirements, you, you would be cooking from home a lot more than eating out or you would really, really limit yourself to the number of restaurants you would be able to go to and have a good selection of things that you can eat. Or what you would have to do is kind of like the veggie vegetarians in my family would do is that, you know, not be as picky. And I don't want to use the word picky, but not be as um, strict. That's the word. So, for example, you know, like rice dishes here will be cooked with chicken stock, for example. So you would like maybe turn a blind eye to that rice that that rice dish you're having even though there's no meat in it, you'd be like, there's probably chicken stocking this, but I'm going to have to sort of live with that if that's want for, want for a better word. There are international restaurants and things like that, uh, totally, but it's just, a, it's just a little bit harder to find. I would say as well, as British teachers, the hardest thing for people to find out here, I never understand this, is that tea is apparently a really important thing for British teachers. Yeah, you can't get tea here. You can get... You can get... English breakfast tea from Twinings or whatever, but you can't get Yorkshire tea, you can't get anything like that. Um, one of the supermarkets here, which is like a fancy supermarket, like our equivalent of Waitrose, has imported Waitrose essential items. So I managed to get Waitrose salad cream and Waitrose tea bags. 
and Waitrose corn, canned corn. And I love the irony of that, that, you know, corn is from maize, corn is from Mexico, and Waitrose has imported it into Mexico. It's literally Colston, Newcastle. But um, it, tea is crazy hard to get hold of. You can get Marmite over here. Baked beans are crazy hard to get hold of. The hardest thing to get hold of over here is HP sauce, and that's the only thing I genuinely, genuinely miss. And that's the only thing that anytime people go to the UK, people grab like things over here. Um, you should totally, Seema, you should totally be a tea merchant over here. The problem is, is that people don't really care about tea here. Also, I would say one of the reasons why tea isn't as good here is that we live at altitude. So Mexico City on average is 200. Oh, wait, just give me a sec. Quartz doing some destructive things. Let me just get rid of him. So Quartz, don't destroy my plants, please. Quartz, shoot, go away. Off you go. Thank you, Captain Doofus. Sorry, I have a houseplant in here, and he has decided that he was going to dig up the houseplant. So that's great. So after the Late Late Show with Rich Wrigley, you'll be joining me with Sweeping in the Late Late Sweeping Show. Oh, man, he's destroyed that. Yeah, so the hardest thing, the problem is that tea isn't as good. Even if you have, like, Yorkshire tea or whatever you drink here, it's not as good as in the UK because water only gets to 90 degrees Celsius. Pigs have bought, he's famous. Can you send pics of bought in, can you send pictures in Podbean? I have no idea. I will post some pictures of bought on my Twitter handle after the show, for sure. Um, he is famous. He is also, I can't say these words here. Just imagine the rudest word to describe someone who's not very nice, but also pure chaos. Um, and also a doofus at the same time. He's all of those things rolled into a little fuzzball who occasionally scratches me. The yeah so anyway so yeah the hardest thing here is that like cooking at different the hardest thing that i found here is cooking at different altitudes really really affects the flavor of things people people are into baking you can get some lovely cakes here don't get me wrong but if you use the same recipe that you would use in the uk it won't cook properly and it will sit like cakes will sink i've tried cooking yorkshire puddings and like the method that i use in the uk gives perfect yorkshire puddings here they'll sink and collapse um it's really, really weird because the altitude means that we're actually, the air is thinner where we are, which means that it's not going to cook or it's not going to get to the right temperature when you're doing things or when you're baking or anything like that. So it can really, really affect it. Um, but to be honest, compared to 10 years ago when I first was living in Mexico, you can pretty much get anything here. Um, the hardest thing I found was getting all the spices that I wanted. So Ironically, it was really hard to get hold of Jira. So it was really hard to get hold of... Sorry, I'm trying to think of the English word for it. What's Jira in English? Uh, okay, yeah. It was really hard to get uh, cumin. That's it. It was really hard to get cumin here. Ironically, because cumin is used in Mexican cooking. Um, but it's actually not. That's a Tex-Mex idea. So it was kind of hard to get hot. It was hard to get hold of uh, turmeric and things like that. But you could get fresh turmeric. You could get the roots um, and all of those kind of things. Um, also, the hardest thing I find here is getting fresh red chilies because all the chilies here are green or like the habaneros here are things like orange in color and things like that. So it's really hard to get nice, fresh red chilies that you would do, that I would use in like my mum's recipes and things like that. Um, also, really hard to get lamb for some reason. You can't get lamb. Um, there's one store that sells lamb mints that I've seen in the last 10 years. Um, weird things like that. And if you are a type of person that needs those home comforts all the time, that might have an effect on you living uh, abroad anywhere. For me, I don't really mind it because now what I've noticed is when I was living in Germany, I was missing Mexican foods that I was used to. Uh, I've 
You should come abroad, Sabir. Seriously, if you miss being abroad, come over here. We're always looking for international teachers. It is awesome. I really, really miss Like, I don't think I could teach in the UK. I really love being back in the UK, primarily to see my friends and my family uh, and to watch a football match that doesn't involve gratuitous amounts of diving. Um, but other than that, I, I don't really miss being in the UK. It's kind of crazy. Anyway, I'm afraid that's our time that's our hour for the late late show with mitch Rig uh, with me rich wrigley we'll be back uh this time next week please please tweet in about what kind of shows you want me to talk about because i really struggle for ideas to talk about uh teaching once i have an idea you you'll hear me i'll rattle off for an hour no problem but i really do need some ideas of what to actually come up with and i want to make sure it's like kind of entertaining for all of you to listen to and actually meaningful for y'all to listen to as well at the same time i don't want to just be rambling about tea or what uh, or anything like that so thank you so much for tuning in this evening have a lovely evening uh if you're in the uk right now or if you're in a place that has evening right now that sounded terrible but you know what i mean you've been listening to the late late show with me rich wrigley tune in next week for another installment This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Need support with